Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. For those of you who have been listening to this podcast, you know Donna Marie Todd as a singer, a biblical storyteller, and the editor of The Biblical Storyteller, the magazine of the Network of Biblical Storytellers International. She is an amazing artist and gifted editor. But today, I have Donna Marie back as a guest for another reason. I will let her tell the story. But Donna Marie's husband, Perrin, died, and she was left a widow and a single parent. This experience sent her on an unplanned and different journey. That journey has led her to writing a book titled Navigating Loss, a survival guide for the newly widowed. As a certified grief recovery specialist, Donna Marie also provides additional resources through her website, awidowstale.com. Among those resources are a six-weeks navigating loss program, a podcast, a blog, private coaching, and retreats. Donna Marie is here to share with us her experience, her insights, her deep wisdom, and her hope. Well, welcome, Donna Marie. Thank you for being with me today. Why don't we begin uh, by uh, letting you tell your story, uh, huh? how you started on this particular journey. How I became a widow and how I began to work with other widows. That's, that's an interesting story. Well, David, I was married for 23 years to an amazing Southern gentleman named Heron. And I would agree with that. He was an <laughs> he amazing was, he man. He was great. Um, he was a wonderful dad. He was a wonderful husband. Um, he was a businessman, um, an elder in the church. He, he just had one little tiny problem, David. And that is that he was born in Alabama. <laughs> so he did not know how to do housework because it's against the law for men to do housework in Alabama. Okay. So on January the and, 1st. And he's down there where they believe that barbecue sauce is made with mayonnaise. That's exactly right. So um, he was an extreme athlete in perfect health. And on January the 1st, 2011, when he told me that he was going to clean the house and vacuum, and do the laundry. I, I thought he had the flu and was delirious until he told me that it was actually our 16-year-old son who was going to vacuum the house and do the laundry. Well, now this did not go over well at all. Because you see, Perrin could take a vacuum cleaner apart and he could put it back together. It's just that he couldn't plug it in and run it over a carpet. <laughs> and our son had grown up with this same idea of manhood. So he took his dad out in the hall and he said, Dad! You are going to ruin everything with mom. And then the big buck and the little buck locked horns out in the hall. And when it was all over, David, the little buck plugged in his earbuds and vacuumed the carpet. But it didn't stop there. Usually on New Year's, we would watch Alabama play in a bowl game somewhere, you know, roll, tide, roll. But not this year. Now, this year, Perrin decided that we were going to go to bed at 10 o'clock that night instead of watching Bama play in a bowl game, instead of watching his director's cut edition of Lord of the Rings with snarling orcs running around <laughs> clubbing everybody on surround sound. <laughs> no, we were all going to go to bed. And I was... So happy that I remember singing while I brushed my teeth. Happy New Year to me. Happy New Year to me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to me. 
And then I got some fine southern loving that night, David Rayburn, the way only an Alabama man can handle it. And I fell asleep in his big, strong arms. And then, at about midnight, I woke to a strange, strangling sound. And I said, um, honey, are you okay? But he didn't answer me. And so I flipped on the light, and I saw that he couldn't answer me because his tongue was turned upside down in his mouth, and his hands were grabbing his throat. And I didn't know what was happening, but I knew it was way bigger than me. And so I, um, I grabbed the phone, and I dialed 911. And because I live in a really small resort town, Everybody showed up, the police, the firemen, the paramedics, the state troopers. Uh, Mission, this is EMS 1. Do you copy? Copy that. 1. Yeah, we have a 55-year-old white male, possible CBA. Do you copy? Copy that. 1. Transport hot. We'll be ready for you. And off they went. Well, I woke my son, and we drove down to the trauma hospital. And when we got there, David, they sent the chaplain out to meet us, mm. which is never a good thing. Yeah. And they took me back to see my husband, whose six-foot-three frame was strapped to a gurney, tubes everywhere. And they told me that um, I never sick a day in his life strong horse of a husband had just um, suffered a massive stroke that he had a five and a half inch clot lodged in his left carotid artery and that pieces of it were already flying off into his brain and that they couldn't tell me how he would be different but that if he lived which they were somewhat in doubt about if he lived he would not be the man i had known at um 10 o'clock that night and uh, i was terrified and he lived through that stroke, but um, 10 months later on the night of my birthday, it happened again and again. And he was on so much blood thinner at that point that um, his brain just imploded. <laughs> and he died nine days later in hospice. <laughs> and in the space of a breath, I went from wife to widow and was left to raise our then 16-year-old son. And that's how I became a widow. So tell us the story from there to the developing of the book. So from there, um, because he died in hospice, I had the opportunity to take bereavement counseling through hospice. And I did that for, um, oh, six months or so, I guess. And then I said, okay, um, I understand the grief and how I'll need to keep working with it. Um, but what about my life? Like, how do I rebuild my life? What about that? Because widowhood changes absolutely every aspect of life for the spouse that's left behind. Your social identity, financial identity, sexual identity, parental identity, marital identity, all of it changes in one breath. And I asked how I should go about rebuilding my life and no one could tell me. 
They said, well, you know, good luck with that. Um, You'll figure it out. And so I began researching books about widowhood. I think I've owned pretty much every book about widowhood. And they all were stories about death and stories about grief, but not about how do you rebuild your life after something traumatic like that. I had a 16-year-old son, very gifted, who's now headed to med school, you know, looking to me for both parental units um, and for navigating his life with him, you know, looking at colleges, that sort of thing. And so, as you know, I I have a background in magazine publishing. And so um, I began to research how people recover from other types of trauma and found some excellent resources at uh, the Veterans Administration. They've done a lot of research into obviously helping veterans get over post-traumatic stress disorder, um, the loss of limbs, which is totally life-changing, that sort of thing. And um, I began researching um, how you can navigate stress. Um, I began researching information on finances, um, who had the best information for women who found themselves suddenly alone, whether that's from divorce or from widowhood. And as I found those resources, I began um, testing them out on myself. I figured somebody's got to do the beta trial, right? (laughs) And so I... um, tried some things that worked really well, and I kept those, and I tried other things that, frankly, didn't do any good at all. And I began to rebuild my life, and I spent about the first three years after my husband died simply rebuilding my own new normal and collecting research on how to do that and then utilizing, identifying the research that was working and eliminating that which wasn't. And um, as magazine publishers are wont to do, I uh, created a file and stored them all there. Well, were there any like support groups of other widows that you all got together? And mm, no, I um, there were not. Uh, there was a a six week program that hospice was offering, um, which really just kind of turned into a um, recitation of basic do don't don't make any big decisions within the first year um and you're going to be sad and cry i didn't find um the kind of camaraderie there that i was looking for so um and there's an implosion that happens in your own life when you become widowed uh there's a great deal of isolation that goes with that and some of that is internal you know you're when someone you love dies your brains fall out and so you just go inside yourself to um, kind of recapture your sense of self. And then the second part of that is isolation from the outside world because we live in a death-phobic, grief-phobic society and um, people don't know what to do with widows. So you don't get phone calls asking you to do things and old friends don't call and that sort of thing. You really do have to kind of invent your life. Well, and you, you kind of in addition to your research, didn't you get certified? Oh, well, I did. So, yeah. So that happened a little later. So um, the next phase of between where did where did my widowhood come and where did my book and my retreat work start to happen? That next phase was when people around me began to be widowed and they would come to me and say, how did you do it? What did you do? Because we've done the grief thing and now we're still stuck and gone and it's a really dark, lonely place. And what do we do now? And so I began sharing my resources. I received a grant from the National Storytelling Network, because I am a storyteller, um, to develop a retreat model for widowed women and um, did that first one about seven years ago. And 
um, it was very well received. So I started offering first the grief retreats, which I still do. They're day-long retreats. And then um, had a busy schedule with that and began podcasting. And then found out that there was a certification for grief recovery. And I took that and got my certification. So I'm a certified grief recovery specialist um, through the grief recovery uh, institution. So... Um, Did getting the certification contribute to your own process? Everything that you do as a person who's seeking more education, I think, contributes to your, your process. Um, and I'm a strong believer, David, that strong process makes strong product. And um, I, I wanted to know uh, everything I could about helping people recover from grief. So that's why I took that certification. So then the next big thing that happened was COVID hit. And um, that really forced all of us into isolation. It canceled all of my retreats for widowed people and um, all my speaking engagements about uh, surviving and navigating loss. And so um, there I was stuck at home with my computer. <laughs> you know the feeling, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I thought, okay, you know, I have all this research. I have this um, amazing audio course that I've built um, to work with widows one-on-one. -on -one. And I have all this information. I should probably put that into a book. It just seemed like the logical thing to do. So uh, I began working on the book and developed Navigating Loss, um, a survival guide for the newly widowed during that COVID period of time. Um, and then I built a video series that went with it at the request of the University of Pittsburgh Hospice Program. I uh, have done a lot of retreats for them and have a close working relationship with their bereavement team there. And they said, you know, a lot of people don't enjoy reading. Why don't you do a video series to go with that? So um, given it was COVID and I didn't have anywhere to go and I had a home recording studio, I went ahead and did that too. So that's how that whole program came about. Well, the book is very practical. It is very practical. And very step-by-step. -step. Yes. Uh, is that in an intentional coping process? Absolutely, because grief is multi-layered and... Loss is um, as, just impacts almost every aspect of your life. So like with any long-term process, the book is designed to take you through approximately 18 weeks worth of thinking about your life and learning to navigate your grief and learning to navigate your new opportunities for your life. So each chapter addresses one specific aspect of widowhood. It has a story usually from my own life, from my own widowhood, and then it also has a technique. So I interviewed um, researchers in trauma recovery, in um, positive psychology, in resiliency from Harvard University, Duke University, the Mayo Clinic, um, National Institutes of Health, and I have a lot of these experts' um, ideas and research represented in the book, but each chapter covers a specific aspect of grief and rebuilding. So it ends, each chapter ends with a practical exercise for the newly bereaved that help them try on that idea, whether that's using a grief container early on to begin to manage um, grief bursts and to help you slowly process your grief, like peeling an onion, for instance, one layer at a time, to um, thinking about dating and remarriage. It goes the whole gamut um, through there, but it gives you very practical ideas at, at the end of each chapter, something to try on that begins to create a comfort level with the fact that, that the bereaved person can do this. They can rebuild their life. It's possible.
Well, you speak of um, proven information mm-hmm. on grief. Mm-hmm. What was that and most helpful for you? Well, so there's, there's a lot of pretty amazing research out there um, on um, the body's ability to heal from grief if you support it in the correct way. So, for instance, um, I use the nutritional information from Dr. Joel Furman, whose program is called Eat to Live, and he's been featured on PBS multiple times and is a researcher in the area of how diet impacts health. So there's an entire chapter based on how you can literally eat food that will help your body recover from trauma. Mm. Because the thing is, grief is cellular, David. Mm. It's, it's not just some emotional thing. It's not just some tears that you cry. It is a super whammy to your body's entire immune system and functioning systems. And so, for instance, using diet to strengthen the body's immune system, which also helps you feel better, there are foods you can eat that um, boost your endorphins inside your body and make you feel better. There's also all kinds of research, Dr. Rick Hansen, um, Michael Miller from Harvard, um, about the impacts of learning to use um, the uh, psych tricks, if you will, to help your mind begin to navigate the change that's going to be required. And so there's a lot of positive psychology techniques. Visualizing your future, for instance, is a very powerful one. Learning relaxation responses. There's Herbert Benson's relaxation response, which is from the Harvard Institute for Mind and Body Health. Um, that technique is, is one of those tips in the book that helps you help your body let go of traumatic response um, because you can become very addicted to traumatic response. And what you want to do is shift your body from using adrenaline and cortisol to using endorphins, the feel-good chemicals of the body. Another really big thing most people don't recognize is that walking is as powerful an antidepressant for situational depression as medication is. So there's a lot of research from Duke that I talk about in there and Harvard as well um, that you know discusses how much exercise you need a day to really reach that point where your body then begins to make those endorphins which keep you from um, feeling emotionally overwhelmed. And you get stronger and you lose weight. It's it's like plus. It's like <laughs> it's like the Ginsu knives, right? It's there's well, so you know, many that, benefits. That's a concept that I've I've not ever heard of. Right. Of it, of the the dimension of, of the chemical yes. physical part of grief. Absolutely. And loss, yes. Uh, that can that can be attended uh, to by things like exercise and diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a new insight. Meditation and prayer, also very powerful. Um, well, you talk about the importance of a plan. Yes, you have to have a plan. What is that? How? So the, the importance of a plan, first off, is that you are taking charge of a situation that took charge of you. So unlike a divorce or anything like that, a breakup of, of other kinds, um, those are things that you do and participate in a experience with death and widowhood is something that is done to you so one of the first steps you have to take in reclaiming your life is to decide to be on your own side and to decide that you're going to have a plan that lets you work your way through all these big changes the financial the social the sexual the parental to work your way through all these big changes and come up with a new normal that lets you have a life beyond that death. If you don't do that, um, 
the Center for Disease Control uh, studies show that if you cannot make that transition, um, somewhere around 70% of widowed persons become chronically ill or die within the first three years of their spouse's death. Hmm. So you essentially become a second victim of the death. Hmm. You have to make a decision. Am I going to be the victim or the victor? Okay. Well, and then in the process of creating the new normal. Hmm. So that's where you really have to work through each one of these things one thing at a time. You have to take a look at your finances. You have to become comfortable managing your own finances. A lot of women um, turn that function over to their spouse. So I work with a lot of widowed women who don't know how much money they have, don't know whether they can survive retirement, that sort of thing. It's scary enough when you're a couple, but you know, when you, when you have, right. you know, not sure where your bank account numbers are. So there's getting comfortable with that sort of thing. There's getting comfortable with the idea that you're going to need to rebuild friendships and um, reaching out, um, recovering uh, things that used to bring you joy. For instance, if you love to, to garden or you love to contra dance or you love to um, horseback ride and your spouse didn't like those things, then you need to recover those parts of yourself and build new um, ways of, of finding joy in your life. So it's, it's a process of examining all the different relationships in your life. Um, I use a life wheel process to help people identify um, what's working and what could use improvement and strengthening. So it's, it is a process, but it begins with saying, I'm going to have a new normal. I will not be the second victim of my spouse's death. Mm. And then um, being very pragmatic about how you go about that. And that's what the book helps with. We'll talk a little more about the, uh, the uh, video course, the six-weeks six course. Right. So the six-week video course... Um, Again, it features stories from my own life, and it also gives people a face-to-face um, kind of friend in their own home um, so that you can, people who are watching can understand that I have lived through this, and they can live through it too. Um, it takes three or four chapters of the book at a time um, and addresses, one addresses grief specific, uh, specifically, how you manage grief bursts, how daily grief practices um, allow you to let go of, of grief energy a little bit at a time. Um, then there's the diet um, one that talks about how you can support yourself nutritionally, the um, financial and legal aspects of being widowed, um, how your, your life may change that way, and what, what people to work with and how to go about finding the right resources for yourself. You know, there's nothing like having a good relationship with your local banker or um, with your local lawyer. Uh, not only does it protect you legally and financially, but it also lets you feel like you have a team, you know, that's standing behind you and there to help you. So the video series walks through all of those things. The last one is obviously dating and remarriage, um, which widows need to very carefully contemplate and make sure that they've let go of their grief because and, and processed their relationship because you can't be in a 23, 30, 35, 50-year relationship, um, six months to a year later, think that you're over that relationship. It took you a long time to build all those patterns with another person. It takes a long time to let go of those patterns with that other person. But if you don't go through that process, then what you do is zip up this enormous, enormous backpack and you drag it with you with all of the um, memories of death and broken dreams and so forth, 
and you bring it into the new person's space and unzip it, and you're right back where you started, mm-hmm. just with somebody new, which isn't fair to them, and it's not fair to you. When, when, and what do you do in the retreats then? What is kind of the structure of the retreat? So I have a three-day retreat. I've got one coming up uh, this uh, next month, actually, August the 24th, um, 25th, and 26th at the Blue Ridge uh, Conference Center. And in that retreat, we'll be talking about the whole gamut of things. We'll be sharing our stories of death. We'll be talking about resiliency. We'll be examining our own um, habits um, around how we're recovering, and we'll learn a lot of new things. I'll have experts in um, nutrition and finance and uh, stress relief there to offer private sessions. So that's the three-day overnight all-inclusive retreat I have coming up. Um, and then I, in my one-day retreats, which are usually sponsored by churches and hospices, um, we begin in the morning by sharing our stories, creating community, that community that I was looking for that I couldn't find. And um, then we process where we are, uh, again, looking at that life wheel to see where do we need to strengthen our process so that we can find a new normal. And then in the afternoon, we look at the research and we... Um, plot out how we're going to go about restoring our sense of safety, our sense of um, purpose, and our sense of joy. Well, as a pastor, um, I experienced that um, it's, it's the statistical norm that females just outlast males. Yes. And so while some of my widows... Uh, had your experience of their husband dying while they were younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them, it was our age or older. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, they had this kind of uh, bond. Sure. You know, and and they, they, they called themselves the widows, uh, where they would get together and go out to eat. Uh, but it... it how does how does the the difference occur uh, when it's later in life as opposed to younger in life? Well, I I think it's important to recognize that I, I I've probably heard a thousand death stories at this point between retreat and and private work, and the, there are a thousand ways to die. What happens to the widowed person after the death is remarkably similar. It really doesn't matter that much what your age is. The first is that, that you are in shock, even if you knew it was coming, even if the, the wife knew her husband was dying of cancer and the last four or five years were filled with emergency room visits and chemotherapy and radiation and home hospice and all of that. Even with that preparation, often people think they've done their grieving. That's actually pre-grieving. And then when the death occurs, you're in shock because this other person is just, they're gone. <laughs> they're simply not there. So you have a lot of support for the first few weeks, um, especially if you're lucky enough to be a person of faith, involved in a faith community. There's a lot of support. There's casseroles. There's people coming to the funeral, cards, calls, that sort of thing. And then after about the first month, everybody else forgets, and they go back to their regular life, and you're there alone without your regular life. So at that point, it really doesn't matter if you're 45 55 like I was, or you're 65 or 70. The the end result is the same. You are suddenly left with a solo life after a substantial period of time living with another person. So 
every single habit of your day has to be kind of cleansed or it just becomes a lifelong mourning process for what isn't there. So um, while they may not have as many challenges in terms of um, doing a lot of financial rebuilding or a lot of parental rebuilding, there are still the challenges, the interpersonal challenges of, of sitting in this vast sea of gone. Um, it's great to go out to lunch with other witted women. That's a great way of building community and finding new joy for yourself. Um, but there's also a lot of just personal work that needs to be done for all those hours that you would have spent with that other person. How does this extend to the widower? I think it's very largely the same. I think the only real difference is that because we live in a man's world and a couple's world, um, I have a widower friend who says that every casserole arrived with an offer. (laughs) 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 And and so men are encouraged to remarry. You know, people will say to to the man after a month or two, you know who you should meet? You know who would be really great for you to get to know? You know, have you ever thought about Beth or... Sarah or whatever. And women are told a different message. Women receive this message. You were so lucky to have him, which is true, right? You'll never find anyone else like him, which is also true. Um, Well, aren't you glad at least you had children? And for the widow often, the death is a terminal event. You know, in other countries, David, in India, they still burn women on a funeral pyre with their husband's belongings, because mm. somehow it was her fault, mm. which is insane. Yes. But um, there are other countries in which widows are treated very uh, unfairly and unkindly. You even see that in biblical reference. Yeah. Well, that's, that's yeah. what brought to my mind when right. you said that. Right. Yeah. Uh, was that widows were often in a state of poverty and and, and social isolation and and even uh, with negative overtones. Correct. And I think while we've moved past some of those things, there's still a lot of that in our society. So in the widow's retreats, we're able to talk out loud about a lot of these things. And um, I'm particularly excited about the new three-day retreat because it'll give women a chance to really dig in deep with not only finding their own joy and just having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to have great food. We're going to have Um, do some really fun activities with each other, but we'll also be able to openly talk about this need to rebuild your life. Well, I mean, can a widower participate in that, or do you Mm. keep them pretty exclusive? So um, not in this three-day retreat that I have coming up in August. That's specifically for widowed women. Um, I do offer uh, navigating loss retreats that are for all grievers, (laughs) uh, which includes men and women, and also grievers who have lost, for instance, a child or a parent. Um, so those are, are very appropriate for widowers as is the book and the video series. Um, so navigating loss, a survival, uh, survival guide for the newly widowed is for both men and women. What about, you mentioned like your son, mm-hmm. uh, what was his process during this? Um, my son's process was, uh, a little different. He was 16. Um, he was extremely, he, he poured himself into being a super achiever to do things that would make his daddy proud of him. 
and he did a great job of that. He became an Eagle Scout. That was a deathbed promise. My husband was an Eagle. His father was an Eagle Scout. So that was a big uh, promise that he fulfilled. He wanted to graduate in the top echelon of his class from high school, and he did that. He got a full ride to college by applying for every scholarship, writing every essay known to man, you know, and um, he's a scientific person. So he'd also done a lot of years of science Olympiad and um, meddled in that quite a bit. But he, he really focused on how he could create a future that honored his dad. And I think I mentioned, you know, now he's headed to um, take medical training and his goal is to um, work in uh, either neurology or neurosurgery uh, as a PA and help people like his dad, not through the initial uh, trauma of stroke and um, traumatic brain injury, but in the aftermath of it. It's still driving his life, you see. Death is still impacting his choices. Well, so how are you finding balancing Mm. the things that you're doing? (laughs) What a sneaky question. Balancing the things that I'm doing. Well, I, I find that all of my work is actually becoming a large circle. So I podcast at A Widow's Tale, and um, my stories there uh, are ones about how I, on a daily basis, am re-navigating my life. I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to have a significant birthday this year, one of those ones that you know, validates that getting old is not for sissies. And um, I think... All of life actually requires a constant re-navigation, a constant rethinking. And uh, my blogging work, my retreat work, my podcasting work, uh, all of those things are starting to b- become a, a big loving circle that just um, is meeting the needs of other people in one way or another, either through free re- resources or through um, paid programs or through the retreats. And then my work with um, biblical storytelling and as a storyteller has also shifted. Um, I'm very interested in stories um, in the Bible about resilience, about the rebuilding from loss, and there are tons of stories like that, of God making all things new, of Christ um, restoring the broken. And so I, I find a renewed energy around those stories, which are in both the Old and the New Testament. Um and then for my storytelling in general, I, I won an award this year for my DVD, The Sheep Shearing Beautician and Other Festival Stories. <laughs> I won a, a National uh, Storytelling World Award for that and Best DVD. And then I'm going to be a presenter at the National Storytelling Network Conference uh, in a, a week or so and be featuring a story there of loss and change. So I want to use my storytelling to help people understand that we all lose things and that it's okay to mourn things, and it's okay to say, I want something different for my life. How do you um, incorporate the spiritual uh, for people, uh, especially because there's such a diversity of spirituality? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like in your workshops, um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you navigate that? How do you negotiate uh, the different spiritualities and, and... Right. Uh, often, David, that really depends on who the audience is. If I'm hired by a hospital or hospice service, um, obviously speaking of uh, specific religion is a taboo there. Um, however, speaking about calling upon a higher power is not. And I have not encountered 
at this point, interestingly enough, anyone who has survived um, the experience of the death of a spouse and who chooses to restore their life. So that's a critical, that's a critical caveat there. If they have chosen to come to a retreat to specifically reach out for new ways of rebuilding their life. In other words, if they've come to that moment where they've said, I can't do this by myself, it's too big, then I find their willingness to rely upon a greater power, no matter what you might want to call that power, is um, an across-the-board embracing. So I use meditative visualization in my retreats where I do guided visualization with breath, um, with... uh, letting those people surrender to that power through that process. Uh, If I'm working in a church situation, I'll openly call that process prayer. (laughs) And if I'm not, (laughs) then it's guided visualization, which it also technically very much is. So I think understanding that the power of God is something we can always reach out and depend upon is an important realization to realize that God does not want us to be alone, does not want us to be, um, to live, to dwell in sorrow. There's a big difference between experiencing sorrow and choosing to live there, experiencing loss and choosing to stay there, to stay with the bitterness of it. Um, so I encourage people to recognize that, um, in these guided visualizations to recognize that even your very breath that you just took in just now is a promise from God that right now you're still alive and you have all kinds of options in front of you. Well, when you, when you're, when you deal with Christian people or, 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 you know, folks that uh, use the Bible as a resource, Mm -hmm. uh, what stories do you draw from it that have been helpful? Um, I, I draw the story, uh, particularly of the hemorrhaging women, because she reached out to Christ in faith. She was near death, had spent all of her money, had suffered for years and years and years, and she was being blocked by the society of her time from touching Christ, struggled to get through the crowd, reached out because she believed if she did, she would be healed. And it's that kind of belief that I want people to hold on to. Hmm. Um, The Samaritan woman is another really lovely story of someone who's been rejected, probably been widowed multiple times. You know, people died a lot back then. Right. And um, she is known by Christ for everything that she is. And um, he obviously cares about her enough to take the time to explain not only who he is, but what he has to offer her. And so I use that as a resource scripture as well. And then a lot of the Psalms are very healing and very beautiful, and I'll use those in a Lectio Divina format. Okay. So that the women can take home scripture strips that have um, positive affirmations from the Psalms and begin to um, walk with those, um, hold those in their heart. Those are very powerful resources. Okay. Well... What do you, as a kind of a final word for widows, uh, what do you want them to know from you? Well, I want them to know, first off, how very sorry I am that they have joined my sisterhood. (laughs) I want them to know that healing is possible, that um, grief is not something that you get over. It's something that you learn how to live with. And as you learn how to live with it, 
um, and you live through death and choose new life, you will find that your um, ability to be empathetic with other people is much greater than it was before. Your concepts of what joy are are much greater and more fulfilling because you have known the opposite extreme. So I would encourage them to uh, reach out and use the Navigating Loss program. It's, it's extremely affordably priced. Uh, it's designed to be very accessible and to allow them to grieve in the privacy of their own home. So that's accessible at widowstale.com and it's the Navigating Loss program. Or to order a copy of the book on Amazon, The Navigating Loss, A Survival Guide for the Newly Widowed. And if they're ready, if they're six months or so beyond the death, to come to a retreat or to encourage their church to sponsor a retreat so that we can together create that community of empowering widow uh, friendships as opposed to those that are stuck in grief and mourning. So, um, and then finally, the three-day retreat I have coming up, August 24, 25, and 26, is going to be a wonderful, wonderful event and lots of fun and a great way to heal. Well, thank you for what you have done. You're welcome. Uh, I know that there are many uh, that are going to be helped uh, by what you have taken from your own experience and Mm -hmm and provided so thank you for that and thank welcome. you for being with me you're welcome david rayburn always my joy and you know uh god never wastes anything does he david i, I believe that as well <laughs> well you've been listening to practicing gospel i'm david rayburn the music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called father let your kingdom come that is on the porter's gate worship project work songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings.